Okay, Matthew 13, 44 to 58. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Dear Lord, we just pray that you would be with us today. Thank you so much that you are with us all the time. I just pray that as we look at these parables about the value of your kingdom, how precious it is, I pray that you'd help us to see that, to see how wonderfully precious your kingdom is and help us to love you more and desire you more. We ask for this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about my great-grandfather. I never met him. He died before I was born, although I did know his wife, my great-grandmother. She died when I was about six, but he died before I was born. He was a really interesting person, and I've heard lots of stories about him from my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother even wrote a book about her childhood and growing up uh, with him as her father. It's called The Master Perler's Daughter. And my great-grandfather, his name was Louis Goldie. And I guess this is a badge of honour for an Aussie, isn't it? That on the 25th of April, 1915, guess where he was? Sorry? South Pole? No. What did someone say? Gallipoli, of course. So he was there, one of the first people to land on Anzac Day, the very first Anzac Day in 1915. He served in Gallipoli for a while until he was injured, like many of them were. Uh, and then while he was recovering in England, he met my great-grandmother. Uh, she wasn't my great-grandmother at the time, of course, but uh, 
and he fell in love with her. And it's interesting how he did meet her because my great-grandfather, his desire was to be a pearler, someone who looked for pearls, dived for pearls, looking for great pearls. And the reason why he met my great-grandmother is because my great-great-grandfather manufactured those diving suits that they wore and went down. So he was checking out those diving suits and lo and behold, he met his daughter who became my great-grandmother. They married, so he was this nice upper-class English woman and my great-grandfather took her after the war back to Australia and settled her in a place called Broome. Has anyone been to Broome? A couple of people? You've been there to Broome? What can you tell me about Broome? One word. Hot! Yes, it's very hot. Another word? Sorry? Pearls? Yes. Hmm? Cable Beach, that's two words. Yes. <laughs> Anything else? Isolated. It is incredibly isolated. It really is the Wild West, especially back then. I've been there once. I drove there. I didn't fly there. It is a long, long way. It's 220 kilometres to the nearest town of Derby to the north and 600 kilometres to the nearest town of Port Hedland to the south. It is a long way from anywhere, even today. But when my great-grandmother went there and my grandmother was born there, it was even more isolated. They didn't have sealed roads back then. My grandmother went to school in Perth. She came home to Broome once a year. It took a week on the ship to get from Perth to Broome. That place was isolated. As someone said, it was hot, really hot. And that was in winter. In summer, it was even hotter. It was a very multicultural town with indigenous people, Japanese people, uh, people from Asia and European people. So it was very mixed. But what kept it going? Why did people live in this place that was so isolated and so hot and so, well, look at the picture, flat. The thing that kept it going was what someone else said before and that is pearls, the pearling industry. And my great-grandfather was one of the pearling lugger masters. There'll be a photo of the pearling lugger coming up. He owned the luggers, he didn't actually do the diving, but he employed the divers to go and dive for the pearls. It was a dangerous industry Many of the pearlers died as they dived for those pearls. There was a possibility of drowning. There was a possibility of getting the bends as you came up too quickly. There was a possibility of getting scraping yourself on coral and getting infected from that and getting sick or dying from it. And then there are, of course, sharks and crocodiles, bad weather, shipwreck, you named it. And the Broome Cemetery is littered with the graves of those people who died while pearling. There were great risks to pearling. But why? Why did people take those great risks? The reason why they took them was they were on the search. They were on the hunt for beautiful pearls. And the fortune that finding the perfect pearl would bring. Well, let's now ask what a pearl is. I know some of you, maybe you have pearls, maybe you really like pearls, but some of us don't know much about pearls. And some of us might wonder why... Yeah, so that Jordan, you're one of them, hey? So um, Damaris would probably like you to know a bit more about pearls. But why are they so valuable? 
Or we might ask, why to the point were they, were they so valuable? Because they used to be more valuable than they are now. Now, pearls are mollusks. They're typically oysters. They grow in mollusks. Sorry, they're not the mollusks, but they grow in them. They're typically oysters. And today, there are two types of pearls, natural and cultured. They both form in similar ways. An impurity gets inside the shell of the oyster shell, and the oyster builds a protective layer of calcium carbonate to isolate the, that impurity, and that becomes the pearl. So today, most pearls are cultured pearls, and that means that we, a person, has put an impurity inside the shell. Uh, it's been introduced by somebody, and then the pearl grows around that. But that's only a recent invention. Back in the day when my grandfather, great-grandfather, sorry, was uh, doing was pearling, you had to wait for an impurity to occur naturally inside the shell. So that meant natural pearls are much rarer than cultured pearls, and back then there were only natural pearls. Now to find a pearl, you actually had to dive and collect hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of oyster shells. They had to be harvested to find one with a pearl. Most of the oyster shells were just used to make shirt buttons. Back then, they didn't have plastic, so they made them from shells. And so very cheap. So they had to go through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these shells to find what they were really looking for, and that is those pearls. And even when they found a pearl, they were of varying qualities because some pearls were, you know, not that great, and others were extremely valuable. But when you did find a valuable pearl, and that was much harder to find back then before cultured pearls, they were valuable. And they were more costly back then than diamonds were. And natural pearls, even today, are still extremely valuable. Back in 2007, the auction house Christie's auctioned the Baroda pearls, which are 68 natural pearls, for $7 million. So now I understand, Jordan, why you don't want to know too much about <laughs> pearls. To find the most beautiful pearls took a lot of work, a lot of risk, a lot of danger, and even death. And it was something that my great-grandfather was willing to risk in order to find the perfect pearl. Merchants, so not the pearlers, but the people who traded in them, Merchants would scour the world looking for the best pearls. And when they found it, when they found the perfect pearl, they would sell everything they had to get it. Not out of compunction. Not because they felt they had to get it. But because they wanted it so much that they would give everything else to get this pearl of great price. There's actually a fairly recent example. I mean, by recent, I mean about 100 years ago. So back in 1917, on the other side of the world, in New York, there was a guy called Morton Plant. And he had a wife. And one day his wife was browsing in the Pierre Cartier store in New York, and she saw this double-strand necklace of 128 pearls. And she wanted it so much that she convinced her husband to swap this mansion here that they lived in, in the middle of New York City, in the prime real estate in New York City, she persuaded him to swap it for those pearls. Here you go, Jordan. That's what... You know, want to get some pearls for Damaris? <laughs> and... 
And today that shop is now the flagship store of Pierre Cartier. As it says in one of our parables today, in Matthew 13, verses 45 to 46, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. In our parable, we have a merchant whose job, it seemed like it was more than just his job, it was his life goal, was to go out and find great pearls, fine pearls. Most likely he travelled to look for them. He brought a rent probably around all the seaside ports, the place back, places back then that were like Broome where they, where they dive for pearls. Travelling was much harder back then. He scoured the markets of seaside towns with the sole task of finding fine pearls. Until one day, he finds it. This is not just any fine pearl, but it's a pearl of great value. The type of pearl that you'd trade a mansion in the middle of New York for. The type of pearl you'd pay $7 million for. Now, he didn't have that cash on him. So he sold everything he had so he could buy that pearl. And the question is, did he feel compelled somehow to sell everything he had? No. Did he feel obligated to sell everything he had? Did he feel like it was some sort of sacrifice to have to sell everything he had? No. Why did he do it? Because he wanted to do it. He willingly wanted to do it because in his eyes, this pearl was much more than everything else that he had. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like that. In Matthew, up to this point, if you read through the gospel of Matthew, it talks about the cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship. We can see it with the first followers of Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 to 20, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, but they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Notice, it doesn't say they went, follow Jesus, keep the nets, follow Jesus, stay with the nets. No, it says they immediately left their nets to follow Jesus. They left behind their jobs, their businesses, and immediately followed Jesus. In chapter 8, we see another example of the call to follow Jesus. Chapter 8, verses 19 to 20. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, First, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Have you ever thought about how audacious these claims of Jesus are? First to the teacher of the law, leave your home, leave everything that you've worked for, leave it all for an unknown future in order to follow Jesus. 
And to the second bloke, he says, to, to, Jesus says he needs to put Jesus ahead even of his family obligations to bury the dead. We can see that the claims of Jesus are strong. They're black and white. There's no half measures. Jesus wants. He doesn't just want. He commands total allegiance. Perhaps summed up with this verse in Matthew 6.33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, the things that we need for life, will be given to you as well. That verse summarizes so much of what it is to follow Jesus. To seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness first before anything else. Who finds that easy to do? Who finds it hard to do? Who's not sure? What about the rest of you? How do we personally come to grips with this? And the question is, what motivates you to follow Jesus? What motivates you to give up or to try to give up everything else to follow Jesus? Is your motivation fear? Is your motivation obligation or a sense of duty? Now, there is a sense that these can be right motives. But if they are the only thing that motivates us to follow Jesus, it's always going to be a struggle to follow Jesus. You know, it's like my kids. I tell them to vacuum the house and do other household chores, which they do eventually after the third or fourth time we've asked them to do it. But, you know, they don't say, you know, Aneshka, can you go and vacuum the house? Yeah, sure, Dad! Just don't get that. Do anyone get that from their kids? I'll ask you for some hints if you are. And even when they do it, it's sort of like... Mm. They only do their chores from a sense of obligation and duty and perhaps a bit of fear of me and Marcella and the dire threats that we issue if they don't do their chores. But if they could have their own way, the washing up, the vacuuming would wait and doing something on the computer would come first, which is normally what happens when we're not looking. Can we be a bit like that with God? No. I think we can. We can be like that with God. We know we're supposed to put God and his righteousness first, that is doing things his way, but underneath, often, we don't really want to. The truth be told, we prefer seeking after other things. Sometimes those other things can be outright sinful things, greed, lust, lying, laziness. But other times they can be morally neutral things. There's nothing in and of themselves that are wrong. But we do it for ourselves and not for God. Whatever it is, the truth be told, we'd often rather do that non-God stuff. We have to try and force ourselves to do the God stuff. Who is more excited about watching the Socceroos this morning than coming to church? Maybe I shouldn't ask that. Well, it wasn't that exciting at the end. That's good, none of you watched it because you're all getting ready for here. But this parable of the pearl today is not like that. No one, no one tells the pearl merchant to sell everything to buy that pearl. No one has to cajole him or give him the hard word, make him feel obligated. He decides himself. Why? Because he wants that pearl so much more than anything else, 
He'll willingly sell everything else he has just to get it. And the parable before this is similar. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, back in those days in Israel, uh, they, I think they did have banks, but they weren't like our banks today. They didn't have banks and superannuation in the same way that we have. So often, if you had a great deal of wealth, one way of storing it was to put it in the ground and hide it somewhere. The problem was, if you died, no one knew where it was until someone accidentally stumbles across it, which seems to be the case here. So here's this man going about his business and he stumbles across this treasure. It's obviously massive treasure worth a great deal. So much so that he goes and sells everything else he has so he can buy the field, not because he wants the field, but because he wants the treasure that is in the field. Now no one compelled him to sell everything. No one forced him to sell everything. He did not feel obligated or guilty or even fearful that he had to do this. He just wanted that treasure so badly that of his own accord he willingly sold everything else he had to get it. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. That when you find it, when you discover it, you will want it so badly that you'll do anything to be a part of it. And friends, that's where the rubber hits the road today. And that's a big question. How much do you want the kingdom of heaven? How badly do you want it? What would you give to be a part of the kingdom of heaven? And that comes down to have you found the kingdom of heaven? Have you seen the kingdom of heaven? The man with the field, he found the treasure. He saw it with his own eyes. The merchant looking for the pearls, he found one pearl of great value. He saw it with his own eyes. Because they had seen it, they knew that the treasure, the pearl, were real and of immense value. But you know, what is hard for us is often we do not see the kingdom of heaven and its immense value. Because if we did see it, it would be no problem to leave everything to follow Jesus. We wouldn't feel compelled, we wouldn't feel obligated, we would just willingly do it. We'd want it so bad, we'd quite happily give up everything else to get it. But you know, it's often hard for us to see how valuable the kingdom of heaven is. And I guess that's why we now have the parable of the net. Verses 37 to 50. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Now the net here, they fished back then a bit differently to what most of us fish today. But there would be a very large fishing net and it was strung either between two boats or between a boat and the shore and then it was dragged through the water. And that was, as it was dragged through the water, it would collect everything in its path. Both fish that were edible or fish that were non-edible or just junk. It was brought to the shore and the catch was sorted. What was of value? Edible fish was kept. What's worthless? Unedible fish or rubbish was thrown away. And so it will be at the kingdom of heaven. At the close of this angel of this age, the angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous, those who follow Jesus from those who haven't. And the evil for those who are not righteous, there will be the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's just a symbol for something very painful. Friends, do we realise that? Do we see that? The final judgment? How badly do you want to escape the final judgment? But it's not just a negative thing we're trying to avoid. There's also the positive side. How badly do you want to be righteous? That is kept forever to be with God. If we could see that, the eternal implications, no one would have to cajole us. No one would have to make us feel obligated, give us the hard word. We would willingly trade everything the world can offer to escape eternal judgment and instead have eternal life with God. Anything. But you know, in our material world today, where the headlines are dominated by politics, wars, inflation, COVID, and of course at the moment, the World Cup, probably after today it won't be dominated so much by the World Cup, but where our daily lives are dominated by our family budgets, by our work, how our kids are doing at school, can it sometimes be hard to see eternity? Who finds that? I mean, I do see the everyday life you know in the book of Ephesians in chapter 1 it talks about our spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus the Messiah but the problem is is that we have difficulty seeing them we have difficulty comprehending and understanding them because you don't see them with your physical eyes and that's why Paul prays for the Ephesians and us too in Ephesians 1 16 to 18 I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Paul prays for them to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, not our physical eyes, but our spiritual eyes, so that the lights in our hearts are switched on. What did Paul pray that they would be enlightened for? He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
Wow. Do you understand that? Do you see it? Do you get it? Going back to Matthew, to our passage today. This is the question that Jesus has asked his disciples in verse 51. He says, have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. They understood, or perhaps at least they said they understood. But you know, not everyone did understand. Just after Jesus says these parables, he goes back to his hometown. He'd been living, when he said this parable, in a place called Capernaum, which is just on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And now he's going back to Nazareth, where the end of that red arrow is. He's going back to Nazareth, where he grew up for a quick visit, perhaps to see his family, the town where he grew up in. And look at the reception he gets there from verses 53 onwards. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary, and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. You know, sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. They didn't understand it. They just didn't get what Jesus was on about. To them, Jesus was just the kid who grew up next door and, knew, and no more. And they missed it. They did not understand the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's this got to do with us? We don't come from Jesus' hometown. But I guess the question is, do you understand? Have your eyes been opened? Sometimes if you've grown up in the church or you've been around the church for a long time, we become familiar with Christianity, with the Bible. And sometimes that familiarity has blinded us to how wonderful it is. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home, which is a wonderful thing to do. But sometimes for people who grow up in Christian homes, it can just be familiar. We go to church, we do the Christian stuff out of obligation or because it's what we feel we're supposed to do. But if you haven't seen that treasure with your own eyes, or at least your spiritual eyes, if you haven't had the eyes of your heart opened, then doing all the Christian stuff will just always seem like a chore rather than a delight. Each of us needs to ask ourselves, do I really get it? Do I see the eternal stakes? Because if you do get it, nothing else matters. Nothing else really matters except the kingdom of God. You know, I remember, I remember when I first found out about the kingdom of heaven, when it dawned on me. It was so wonderful. I really was willing to give up everything. You know, when I decided to become a Christian when I was 17, I knew that becoming a Christian would give me certain difficulties. Difficulties with my family, who at the time opposed it, Difficulties at work with my budding aviation career. Difficulties with finding a nice girl because now I knew that I was restricted to only going out with and marrying a committed Christian girl. All others were off limits. I knew that. But I saw that pearl 
I saw that treasure. And I was willing to trade all of that just to get the kingdom of heaven. You see, almost, I guess you could say, because when I became a Christian, I was a pilot. And I remember as a young Christian, I would pray to God, God, I will do anything for you. Absolutely anything that involves flying aeroplanes. That's a very dangerous thing to say. Guess what? I'm not flying aeroplanes now, only down the back. And yes, I still do like aeroplanes and sometimes wonder what it would be like if I was still flying. But then I come back to my senses and I realise that the kingdom of heaven has to come even before my passion of flying. Nothing wrong with flying, of course. But there's something wrong with anything if it comes before God. You know, and I don't regret it. I don't feel cajoled into that. It's a no-brainer to have the kingdom of heaven over everything else, including flying. Wherever you are, whatever you do, we need to put the kingdom of heaven first right where we are every day in everything we do. For all of us, every choice you make, the way you live, do you put the kingdom of heaven first? And what does that look like? Well, on one level, I often find people find it hard to give up things. Perhaps it's a pornography addiction. Perhaps it's a relationship with an unbeliever. Perhaps it's the love of money. Perhaps it's cheating on your tax or deceiving other people to maximise profits. Whatever it is, those things are hard to give up. But when you understand the kingdom of heaven, it's not a sacrifice anymore. You give it up with joy to get the kingdom of heaven. But then there are other things in our lives that aren't sinful in and of themselves, like flying, I guess. But it's a matter of priorities. Where do we put our time and our money? Is our priority our hobbies, our wealth, or our super fund? What's more important, Ford or Jesus? Or is our priority the kingdom of heaven? Or when difficulties come our way, such as serious health issues, financial difficulties, marital breakdown, even being wronged by other Christians, which is sometimes the most painful thing to happen. Do these things stop us from following Jesus? Or do we still see that priceless pearl of the kingdom of heaven? You now, for us personally, for Marcella and myself personally, this is very real. When we went as missionaries to Central Asia, there was a massive financial cost in doing so. There was a relational cost too as we left family behind in Australia. But do we regret that? Absolutely not. God has been gracious to show us the kingdom of heaven. And there's no way I would trade the things of the kingdom of God for all the money and riches and financial security in this world. As we serve God, as we encounter difficulties and discouragements, as we pay the cost of following Jesus, we remember what's at stake and how priceless the kingdom of God is and how, at the end of the day, it's actually not really a sacrifice to put the kingdom of first, the kingdom of God first, but it's actually a privilege. It's a privilege to have the opportunity to give up everything to follow Jesus. For that pearl of great price, that treasure without value, 
eternal life under the kingship, the rule of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. If you have not seen that treasure, felt it, touched it, really understood it, if you do, know, do not know what it is like to have your sins, your wrongdoings forgiven by God, if you have not turned away from living life your own way and turned to Jesus the Messiah, who died on the cross so that your sins, your wrongdoings could be forgiven forever and who rose from the dead so that you could live forever. If you have not turned to him in faith, trusting in him that he is the only hope for this world, indeed much more valuable than any pearl or treasure in this world, then I will pray afterwards that God would show you that. And please also do come and seek me out or Steve or one of the elders here afterwards and we can pray together that God would show that to you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the pearl of great price, that treasure in a field beyond value, priceless. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one of us to see that following you, is so much more valuable than anything else that we have. That we would be willing to give up things, to give up our honour, to give up our reputation, to give up money if that's what's required, our job, whatever it is. For each one of us, it's different. Help us to put you first every day in life, but not out of a sense of compunction or that we feel obligated or have to, but because we can see that pearl of great price. We ask for this in your name. Amen.